Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Money Mondays where we talk about three topics, how to make money, how to invest money, how to give it away to charity. Our guest has done all of those things at a big scale. He's thrown live events, invested over 100 units. He has something called the D2D Con. Last year, he had over 3,000 people at it. He's going to be on his seventh one coming up next. So we're going to go over how does he invest, talk about door-to-door, that whole industry and everything about it, since obviously he owns the whole convention about it. And then we're going to talk about charity and the things that he's done in the charity space and tied in door-to-door into that, which I absolutely love. Please welcome Mr. Sam Taggart. Thanks for having me on the show. This is awesome. All right. So we are sitting here in an RV motorhome right here at the ranch, at the Wild Jungle. You can hear a bit of background noise as people are driving by because Sam is throwing an event 12 feet away from us inside there. Talk to us about why you like events. Why do you like masterminds? D2D Con, just walk us through the event side of your world. Yeah, I think like selfishly, I'd started masterminds about six months ago or six years ago. And I just wanted to surround myself with cooler people. Like it's a way to kind of like a podcast. You get a, like an excuse to go hang out exactly. with somebody for an hour, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so my mastermind was kind of an excuse for me to do cool things. Like we're going to Tahiti this year and to Switzerland last year and, to, you know, Guatemala and do epic stuff like this fun ranch experience. We meet up every quarter. And for me, it's like, they always say like, you are the five people you surround yourself with. They're like, you know, show me your network and I'll show you your net worth. And that's always a concept, but I'm like, what are we actually doing to be intentional around cultivating uh, networks and experiences that we want to be part of? And so we started a few different masterminds. This one's all of our CEOs. We've got a, almost 100 CEOs in our expert circle. And then we have like a sales management one, et cetera. So that's why we're here. So from a member's perspective or an attendee's perspective, why should they go to something like D2D Con, join a mastermind? Why should people go to live events? I think some, like I, I go to a lot and... I think sometimes like people go without an intention. So I'd say don't go if that's not the point, right? And I found like if you go with like, maybe I need to meet this kind of person or maybe I need to take this one thing. Like my whole thing is like, go and get one thing that can make you a million, five million, $10 million if you just implemented it. What Like what's your ROI on a $500 event right. or like a, I don't know, whatever they charge, right? I just went to Scotland for three days and spent 30,000 on a three day event. Hmm. And people are like, why'd you do that? I'm like, just because there's other business owners and who knows what the opportunities and maybe there's a partnership there. Maybe there's a lesson that I learned that I implemented this equity structure with my team and profit share and I took this and now I've already executed on it. I'm like, boom, that was the one thing I need to take away. Right. That was it. I'm good. I felt like I got my 30 grand worth. So take us back a bit. How did you even start D2D Con? Were you in the door-to-door space yourself? Were you out there knocking on doors? Like walk us through, how did you get to D2D Con part one? Yeah, so I did door-to-door sales since I was 11 years old. Oh, wow. Okay. So like, that's you're, all you're I've done. That's, I've never had a W-2. Nobody's wow. written me a wage. I, I remember the first year I was 18 and I, you know, I had a curb painting business all through high school. And um, then I graduate high school, I go start doing alarms. And I went on a two-year service mission, again, knocking doors in Argentina. And I get a call from my dad. He's like, hey, you need to pay your taxes. And I was like, what the hell is that? What does like, that mean? <laughs> yeah, I'm like, what is that? It's like, well, you're the wrong number. <laughs> yeah, you're a 1099. You should have to file your own taxes. And I had to learn, you know what I mean? Like, I just didn't even know that, you know, nobody ever told me W-2 versus 1099. Like nobody, I just, that was how all I did. So fortunately, I've always been a carnivore in a sense of eat what you kill, which has then helped translate into running different businesses, etc. Because I believe everybody's a door knocker. I don't care if you're you know, running a hair salon to running investments, whatever, like the people that are willing to go knock doors and go find the opportunities that lie behind the door are the ones that are winning in this world. So, you know, I did that for 15 years. And then um, I realized that there was a big hole in this industry, whether it was solar or pest control alarms or whatever, that 
there was a lot of like bad mouthing and slander and everybody's like, oh, you're a door to door sales guy. When are you going to get a real job? <laughs> and I was like, what do you mean? This is a real job. Like we make great money. I, you know, I was a millionaire by 23. Like, what do you do? You right. know what I mean? And I was getting all the shit and I was like, no, that's not cool. So I started this mission to unify up level and bring honor and integrity to the door door space. Mm. And that's where DDD con and DDD podcast and DDD university and all the masterminds, and everything's kind of stemmed from that. So when you say make great money, can you walk us through? I've, I've heard stories. I've seen, you know, I've spoken a lot of like solar events and pest control events. And I, I see some kids with 21, 23, 25 years old with Teslas and Ferraris and yep. Bentleys. I'm like, what the heck's going on? Can you walk us through just the, not, not all the glitz and glamour, like walk us the real numbers. What can someone make working door to door? Zero. You yeah. would get your face kicked in. <laughs> if you were a lazy piece of shit, zero dollars. Zero dollars. And that's why I think a lot of people are afraid to do it is because there's no base. Right. And I'm like, well, there you go. Break upon the break out of the vortex and realize that the entrepreneurs of the world and the people that are actually creating value have ultimate job security. And nobody's gonna fire me working for their sales company because it contributed millions and millions of dollars. So I'm of course entitled to a good portion of that, whether I'm selling solar pest, alarms, whatever. So I was the number one rep at Vivint. Um, and just in personal sales that year, I mean, this is 2014. Now commissions have even gotten better. Mm. This is an alarms. You know, I was making over half a million dollars a summer. So it's like $500,000 in a summer, summer, four or five months. Oh my God. <laughs> so I'd go play. I went to Bali for a month. I went to Europe for a month. I go right. snowboard every day and then I go sell for four or five right. months and, and, and I go time. knock and people are like, I mean, granted I'm an outlier, but like, I think people shit on that. They're like, oh, you're a daughter or that you see them come to your house and you're like, you're a piece of crap. I'm like, they're actually willing to do what most people aren't willing to do in hopes of a commission and hopes of a, a better life. Like it's a kind of an opportunity to break free, whether you're selling roofs or pests or, I mean, there's a million things, water softeners, windows. I mean, I could list off so many things, but it's like the cool part is it's the eat what you keep kill mentality and no owner is going to be like, stop selling. Like you sold too money. Yeah. Like, and if you work out a commission structure, it's like, I'll just keep going until you tell like until <laughs> I make as much as I need to. Like, and, and, and I think a lot of people put a limitation because the opportunity is endless. I know a guy's making a million dollars a year plus two, three. Just knocking on doors, selling solar and pest control and knocking on doors. So bottom line is zero. They can make yep. zero. You make zero. <laughs> if, you're a piece of, if you're a piece of crap, and I'm going to say this like this, I would say, so many people think they're so cool until they go get their face kicked in for a week. Yeah. And then you're like, oh, I'm not that cool. Yeah. Like it's a huge reflection of your mental toughness, your emotional resilience, your actual like commitment to something where they give up after three days and they're like, I can't do this. This isn't for me. I'm like, right. well, you're telling me that the there's a million dollar opportunity in front of you and you're you're going to pussy out after three days? Because 20 people back. said no. Yeah, because 20 people said no. Go put your tail between your legs. Come on. So that's what's fun about our industry is like at DDDCon, it's a bunch of badasses because they're they're willing to get their face kicked in year after year, door after door, and they make good money. So, it's so fun. walk us through like that first moment, right? People are, that are nervous, the hardest part, whether it's to get on stage to speak or to get Cold to that call, first, yeah. right? What is the, when they're getting that first rejection, let's, we're not going to get into like, how do you deal with, you know? rebuttals and things but like that first rejection how do people get over rejection number one five ten twenty to like keep going i think the more you can disassociate it's not me it's just the scenario i think so many people when they get rejected in life they take it personal mm. right so they're like he didn't like my shirt it's like <laughs> no he doesn't care about you he just needed to think of the fastest thing you could say to make it yourself right. sound like a dick so you ran away so it's like when you can have what we call selective hearing when you get rejected 
there's an element of like selective amnesia too of like mm. what do i forget and what am i choosing to hear and how do i move on to the next right and that could be objection after objection after objection let's say somebody's like hammering me i'm just like oh that's cool oh <laughs> thanks man oh you're you're so awesome yeah. you know whatever if i'm i'm kind of moving through rebuttals right or that could be door after door customer after customer but i think like anybody i don't think anybody can disagree with the law of averages it's like if you know your numbers if i talk to this many people present this many times have this closing percentage it's a simple math equation a lot of times so i have selective amnesia i had an energy drink business back in the days and we were in 55,000 retail stores i got into 43 distributors i met with all 43 distributors and i met with every major chain store i also would go to local liquor stores car washes we were salt lake was actually our biggest we had nine budweiser distributors throughout salt lake the salt lake state fair was called the hoosier daddy energy drink state fair for two years Let's in partnership with smith's grocery store and when I say selective amnesia, I'm telling you that right now, if I put a lie detector test right now, I don't remember one single retailer or distributor saying no. Yeah, you just remember all the wins. I, I physically don't remember anybody saying no. Not it's, one. Not one. Not like even like a glitch of a, a twinkle. I can't remember <coughs> anybody saying no. But it's like, how many doors did you knock on to create Infinite. That? <laughs> like you were... That's all I did. You were just sitting there calling, knocking, going uh, out, meeting. Car wash, liquor store. I didn't care. I would go to everybody. I had a energy drink t-shirt on, energy drink hat on, energy drinks in my pockets, in my backpack, in my car. And I just went everywhere and just... But how many kids <laughs> or people or adults in their grown age, they're broke, they're about to lose their home, are too cool to do that. Right. To put on a cool little beanie that says energy drink and right. a cool little energy in your pocket, whatever the thing they're slinging. I think that's the problem is they're just like their ego, their intimidation, whatever it is. I'm like, dude, you got your back against the wall. You're about to lose your house and you won't, you're not willing to get out. Right. Like, Good. You deserve to lose your house. There was a company I worked with, a tech company called MoPro and they had all this funding. And my friend said, Hey, will you join the advisory board? And I was like, no. So what are you talking about? We're like brothers. We're like dear friends. And I was an investor in a bunch of companies and I was like, you raised tens of millions of dollars and you built this amazing product. That's gorgeous, but you don't have people out there selling door to door. And he was like, what are you talking about? I said, give me a short amount of time. Let me hire a team. I'm going to go hire 40 sales reps and I'm going to take them out to conventions and trade shows and then go door to door in between. On the weekdays, we're going to go door to door. On the weekends, we're going to go to trade shows. Yes. We got 1,100 accounts at $5,000 per contract times 1,100 in four months. That, com that company went on to raise $70 million and like, whoop, 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 because we just went out and built a whole It's a crazy Salesforce. good acquisition model. And I think the people are afraid to manage people. You had to manage 40 headaches. Yeah. You had to keep them accountable. Yep. But it's like business, like if you broke it down, I call it the DDD formula. It's reps, meaning 40. What if you had 80? Right. What if you had 20, right? Mm -hmm. Times opportunities. How many people are they actually talking to? Right. And then their closing percentage. Right. And anybody who's trying to scale their business, like, I want to make more money. I'm like, okay, how many of you are there? Is it just you? Well, you can only talk to so many people. Yep. And are you only talking to five people a day or you're talking to 20 people a day or 50 people a day? And then what's your closing percentage? How do you get better at sales? And that's where I moved into is I realized there's no support training on sales yes. when it came to cold calling. There's no tra support on recruiting. Like, how do I go build the sales army? And so that's what we became experts in is just building cultures and systems that teach sales, teach culture, teach recruiting, teach growth and scaling businesses. So I went and hired <laughs> these, these 40 kids and all I said was, we're going to go see 20 units a day, 20 doors a day. Okay. Cause we would go to like strip malls, office buildings, etc. If you knocked on 20 doors, I just need you to get four appointments and close one lead. If you do that, I guarantee you a hundred thousand dollars for the year. 20 
knock on 20 doors, get four appointments, close one, and you get 100 grand. Because there's a $400 commission. So if you made two grand a week, it's eight grand a month, it's $96,000 for the year, just by the basics. Yep. If you just kind of suck, you're going to make 100 grand this year. And so I had these kids out there just knocking on 36 doors and 41 doors and running around up and down. They were making 1200 bucks a day, 1500 bucks a day in commissions, just selling tech, like selling this basic thing. All we were selling, honestly, was how to make a website. We were just making websites for people. That's awesome. Back in the, you know, 2014. Anyways. All right. So let's shift gears. When you start to decide, I'm going to throw a conference. There's a lot of moving parts to throw events. You know, both you and I love throwing events. There's a lot of moving parts to it. Cautious with the word love. Okay. I mean, <laughs> we do events <laughs> and it's fun, but there's a lot that goes into it. So you have the idea for your very first conference. It's, it's showtime. How do you get butts in seats? How do you decide how big or small you're going to go for it? And how the heck do people know what it's going to cost them to throw? Just give us the main idea of throwing D to D con number one. Okay. First off, if I were to like, had a podcast like this, that would have been great. Yeah. Because I had never been to a conference, let alone thrown a <laughs> conference. <laughs> we have vendors. We got yeah, like, we're renting sponsors. out a huge like convention center. And I was like, oh my gosh, to hang the pipe and drape costs $40,000. Right. I'm like, we're talking like putting up some pipes and right. some like. Wait, you want us to move the chairs for 200 bucks a chair? What are you talking yeah, you're about? like, why? Like, can I just move them? No, you right. can't touch them. It's the union. Yeah. You're like, what do you mean? I, what is the union? Yeah, you're right. like, what is the union? What is that? Why does it take two guys to move one chair? Yeah, you're like, <laughs> what is this? So like, first off, I had no idea. But I think the imperfect action is better than perfect inaction. So I had this mission where it was like calling me and I, I didn't want to do it. Like I literally was in the desert for three days on a meditation retreat kind of the woo-woo-ism or whatever. Day two, I'm fasting for three days and I had a vision and it was this me speaking on this big stage and I was like, what is that? What is that? I was the VP of sales of a solar company at that time and I was like, wait a minute. And, then, and God was just like, hey, throw this event. I'm like, no way. Like, it's going to be a straight up boxing match. Like, <laughs> like people are going to kill each other. They're so competitive and cutthroat. They're all taking each other's reps. Right. So it's a very, it's a very like competitive world, especially where I come in Utah. And I was like, I put it off for a couple of weeks and just kept eating at me. So first off, step one, don't throw an event if you're committed to the long term of throwing the event. I think people think, oh, I'm going to throw this event and make a ton of money. I didn't make money until year four. Sure. So like it was like, okay, this needs to be an industry conference because yet there is no industry conference. So I'm like, I'm going to create this new ocean. And the first year lost like 30 grand. And I was like stoked on that. Like I was like, I only lost 30 grand. Right. I didn't lose my shorts. Right. It's huge for your brand. Yeah. And I was like, the marketing would have been worth the 30 grand alone. Like I had 800 people there. 800 your first one? My first oh, one. Wow. Okay. That's big. So my first one, I'm thinking we're three weeks before the event and we sold like 200 tickets. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, yes, if we could get 500, I was stoked. Right. I was like, dude, 500 in a room. That was like a big goal for me because to get 500 people your first event would be a really good event. For sure. Especially when people are paying 100 to 400 bucks or 300 bucks, right? And what happened the week of was Vivint, who I used to work for, now no longer had for a couple of years, decides to rent the this, this space right down the hall in the same convention center and brought Grant Cardone and threw a free event at the same time as Door to Oh my gosh. So I was like, oh no. I get a call on Monday. He's like, hey, dude, I just want to give you a heads up. We're actually throwing an event. We couldn't do it at the Vivian Arena, but, so we're gonna do this all pal, same time. Just bring everybody for free. I was like, no, 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 this can't be true. <laughs> I was like, are you effing kidding me? So I like hang up. I'm like, I call my buddy at Vivian. I was like, dude, is this happening? Do you know of like a good speaker coming in this weekend convention? He's like, no, I haven't heard anything yet. I'm like, you would know if you're gonna have a put hundred thousand dollars into an event. Right. 
So I hang up. He calls me back two hours later. He's like, dude, is this what you're talking about? Oh He's like, that's messed up, bro. Like, <laughs> and, and they had a big lettering that said hashtag only Vivint. And there was like a recruiting event. And they were doing everything that I was against, where I was hashtag only unity. The mission was very pure. And I kept it that way. Even during the event, I just didn't even say anything. Like, I was just like, shut your mouth, by the high road. <laughs> and you see half, yeah, like I'm zenning out. I'm like, I'm like, okay. And half the room kind of like slowly leaves. Yeah, of course. Um, but what's crazy is like, it actually helped rally everybody. And the reason I say this is it's like, number two is you got to have people that are willing to rally behind you. Like what you do really well at events is you get us all involved. You're like, bring your audience, you bring your audience, right. you bring your audience. Give me a reason to rally behind you. Mm -hmm. And everybody hated the Vivian Warren giant because they're the bulldog in the industry. And so when they heard that, all of a sudden people were like, F that, I'm coming. I get calls from like owners of these big companies. They're like, I'm coming. Do you need me to speak? What do you need me to do? I'll buy 50 tickets. And like wow. all of a sudden I was like, wow, this like, <laughs> this like pain turned into yeah. like kind of a blessing just to stick it to them. Right. And like my buddy Satema, you might know him. He like calls me. He's like, let me speak at the same time as Cardone. And like Cardone gets there. He like turns the corner. He's like, they're like, no, no, that's the wrong way. No he's way. like, what, what's that? Mm -hmm. <laughs> he's like, oh my God. like, it was like a crazy mess. And then like it backfired on him because they kept saying like, uh, you know, why wouldn't you work for us? And it was just like this ego driven event. And half the people left halfway through the event of theirs and came back. And I was right. like, it was a testament of like, if you're going to throw an event, what's the mission of the event? Right? Like, does it have a purpose or is it just for your own clout? And just another business conference is it like where mine was to unify to up level to bring honor and it was like needed like there was a true pain point and it created controversy so still to this day i text the ceo of uh sunrun and he texts me back i was like hey you should have the you should have him come speak and i was like he's like why well, i don't know if there's a conflict here and i was like what do you mean the conflict you're one of the largest door-to-door -door companies in the country and our mission is to unify and up level and bring honor and integrity to the door to door space. Why wouldn't you want to participate in that? How's that anything conflicting of what you stand for? Well, you know, it doesn't really brand for us and blah, blah, blah. I'm like scarcity. And I was like, you know, what's fun is you can build an event that creates polarity. It creates opposition, it creates noise. There's actual value in that where I think if you're just another cool training, like it doesn't have as much legs. And, and, and it's been, a, it's been a battle. Like COVID was an interesting year. Like, you know, it took, like I said, it costs that first year. We did everything on a budget. I'm like 3 a.m. painting freaking foam letters right. in my garage right. myself. You know what I mean? Like I hadn't even had time to prepare my own speech. I'm getting up there and I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm up. Oh, I didn't even put slides together. You know what I mean? Like it's a lot more that goes into it than I think people anticipate. But I'm grateful that I you know, sent it. And so now, as you just had 3000 people at your last one, what's the future of DDDCon? I think the goal would be. There's these industry conferences like it's fun when you create a new ocean, other people of start course. following suit. Right. Yeah. So solar cons popped up, roof cons popped up, yep. um, all these other like side things. Um, I'm actually meeting with one of the owners of one of those this week mm -hmm. here. And I think there's an opportunity for collaboration and, for sure. and connectedness instead of competition. So, you know, finding opportunity to partner, finding opportunity to say, is there a roll up of conventions? Like mm -hmm. there's a net net profit and a value. And it's kind of like is this a Sam show all the time or is this like an industry show where my face doesn't always need to be the face. Right. right. So I think it's just creating strategic partnerships of, I mean, even you and I, like if you're throwing these big personal developments instead of like, let's do them on the same weekend right. or <laughs> we, Oh, I just went to his thing two weeks ago. Like, why would I go to your thing? I just right. flew over there. 
I think there's opportunity of similar networks of saying, how do we share networks? How do we create unique experiences where it's like, no, if you're into like wooism, go to this one. If you're into like, you just want businessy advice, go to this one. And there's a common message where people can tee up their calendar for the next 12 months and be like, business here, real estate investing here, and then like zend out here, and then boom, boom, boom. And I kind of planned out my year. You know what I mean? Yeah. If somebody's listening, <laughs> I've been hoping that someone makes just like one main calendar yeah. so we can all see what's coming up. So also we don't, uh, entrepreneurs ourselves, we don't conflict. The event organizers don't conflict with each other because we've had that happen. I was speaking in Dallas last month at Ryan Steumann's event because he throws a big conference every year, the Hardcore Closer. And I had to teleport over to Andy Frisella's because he has Summer Smash and they, on the same weekend. Yeah, That's easy to either avoid or I can like, plan my flights better. I just think it's a lot of people. And those aren't similar conferences; they're just very friend, you know, similar audiences. And so I just think it's important if we could all talk or yeah, figure out a way. When you sent out the calendar for the years, I yeah. was like, "Thank you." <laughs> the only reason I didn't do Avengers for the second year, I was like, "Well, I can only make one of the this events, right? of, and I've already planned this calendar, so <laughs> I give you my calendar for 2024 and be like, oh, I can still move. We're early enough where I could move or yep. you could move, where nobody's like, I booked flights for February or 2024 right now. It's right. like people don't do that. Exactly. So I think. My world is like, how do we invest and create relationships that really collaborate on these events? Because at some point, certain people are like, I'm conferenced out and I've seen Ed Milet 17 times, no offense, but like, it sells the same story every time. It's like, how do you create a unique experience? How do you create a unique uh, audience that then collaborates with each other? Because I think the opportunity in conferences is the networks of the attendees that come. So I created different layers of events. So I have elevator nights, which is totally free. There's no tickets, no sponsors, no sales on stage. We've run 52 times now. We have Operation Black Site. It's 20000 per person for the year. And that's where they learn military training and how to fight. Yeah, it's very intentional. Yes, that's what we have here. That's, on, that's why we have the ranch here. We built a whole military training course here. We have 100 million mastermind, which is $100,000 per person. And that's obviously for business owners doing $5 million or more. We have the charity events, the world's largest toy drive. That was fun, by the way. I was there. It was epic. And we're going to do it again this year for our 10-year anniversary uh, to try to really destroy the record. But I think it's important because it allows people to be able to go to a free event, a super expensive event, a charity event. I just want people meeting each other. Yeah. Once stuff happens. The group text that you have for just Utah legends, one, I feel like badass. I'm like, I'm on this text. Yeah. <laughs> um, but two, like it creates the community, right? Like you're like, hey, we're all doing this toy drive. And I'm like, oh, Steve, what's up? Oh, right. Jimmy, what's up? Right. Oh, hey, this guy. You know what I mean? And it's like. I start to co connect and the only time that I would connect is if I actually went to an event. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to call him on a Friday and be like, Hey, you want to go on a date night? Right. Maybe every once in a while, but like business has been done where Steve now is a vendor of ours and we've sent him hundreds of thousand dollar business. Right. Now, Jimmy and I've done, I mean, we've done deals for the last 10 sure. years, but like, but like we've created these networks of like opportunities and you've been a big catalyst to that. So awesome. thank you. All right. Let's put on our investing hats. You said you have around a hundred doors. What does that mean? Like, talk us through, like, why do you invest? Why do you own units? Like, what is, what is that? Well, every dumb summer sales guy, door to door, goes and buys a BMW or a nice truck or a dumb car. Cool, watch. Like, cool you, dude. Yeah. I remember I went to train a guy and he, this kid had a Louis Vuitton wallet. And I was like, how much is that wallet, bro? Yeah. I was like, where's your first investment property, bro? You bought a wallet when you could have, like, started taking the shoes and the wallet and the sunglasses you have on right now right. and that would have like partnered in on a deal that i would have helped you make 100 grand or you just bought a cool louis vuitton that's cool right you probably lose it like every other nice sunglasses i've ever bought so i stopped right. buying nice sunglasses so i drove a kia optima until i was 
I mean, it was like a hybrid. I rented out my basement. I was, I, my whole thing was live broke, pretend I'm broke and put all my money into real estate. Yeah. And I was one of the unique ones that had the long hair and the genie pants and drove a Kia. And everybody's like, who's this guy? I'm like, oh, I don't care. Like I, I have no ego, like cool. You and your boat, but you have no real estate. So I had bought a duplex and I bought another duplex and I bought three plex and I bought a couple four plex and I got, you know what I mean? I just yeah. kept doing that every year since I was 22, I bought real estate. And so if you look at the last 10, 12 years, you're like, okay, one appreciation. I bought my first one for 220 grand. Right. The same house today would be like 800 grand. Sure. So it's like, I just kept doing 1031, 1031 to this apartment complex, 1031 that apartment complex into multiple apartment complexes. And I just kept doing that. And I made it an intention to find people that are operators in the real estate space that are winning in the real estate space and just piggyback on their deals. Exactly. So I invest in a lot of real estate, but never invest in real estate. I, yeah, I, I, like, do it, I do it to everybody else. I was like, <laughs> I don't, I've not even been to my apartments. I have a trip in Dallas and I was like, I probably should stop by the one that I've owned for two years. I don't even know where it You're is. Like, I'm not sure the address. Hold on. I know. It's like, I was like, <laughs> like I went to one in Utah that I bought cause it was down the street twice when I bought it and when I sold it and I made a video about it. I'm like, yeah. But when I make a million bucks on that, when I turned a million into 2 million or 2.4 in two years, like, and I just went one time. I think right. people don't think that way. I don't think they... They don't. That's what the whole point of this podcast is. Yeah. I'm like, guys, if you're... And, and I talk about it in my, my trainings a lot. I'm like, people think investing's hard. And I like that you talked about the stock market. You could literally put $100 a month into the stock market and say, I'm an investor. Mm -hmm. And there's no shame in that. Because I, I take the same logic people say, I'm a giver or I'm a donator. I'm, I'm charitable. If you're not charitable when you're broke, you probably won't be charitable when you're rich. Mm -hmm. If you're not an investor when you're broke, you probably won't be an investor once you have money. You'll probably just keep spending it and you'll still be broke. Yep. And I think if you just started to change the mindset around the money of investing of like, I'm an investor, whether it's a hundred bucks this month or a hundred thousand dollars this month, I'm putting aside money to be an investor and just find those vehicles that fit your quantity or, or, or risk tolerance. So I've said this story before at events and it's based on what you just said. I went to this old man's house. I had known him for many years, but when I got to his house, it took like six minutes to get up the driveway. That's how rich he was, just to give you an idea of how big this house was. And he, I asked him about his business, and he said he never had a business. All he did was every year, he bought a house or a condo that was only like 100K to 200K. And the next year, he bought another house for 100K to 200K. And then on the year three, sometimes he would refinance one of the first houses and take that money out and buy houses three, four, and five. And he was old. And he's like, after a while, I had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of units uh -huh. and I never sold any of them. I just keep buying cheap places over and over because people are always going to need cheap rent. It's huge. And this guy's house had a six minute driveway. And so I still think about that every single day because it's mind blowing how simple the concept is because you did it. I did it. You just every Ten year. Years. You just, just kept buying another one. Another du duplex, 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 triplex. All right, guys, it's important to have these discussions. Because we all grew up thinking it's rude to talk about money or money is the root of all evil. When in fact, we just talked about what money can do for charity. You get to travel, you get to throw events, you pay for your car, gas, food, your, your mom's health situation. Like money is useful for so many different things. The evil part is tiny that very few people actually do. But people try to focus on that part and forget all the things that money actually does as a function. I want to I want to tell you one quick story because it's relevant to this. There was a young men's pastor that I a youth leader that came to my class, 30 of us when we were 14, and he owned a ranch like this. So that's why I was like, "Oh, we're in this ranch. We yeah. called it Fogg's Ranch. I was in Fresno, California." And 
he came and he said, I will set up a stocks trade account, like an investing account for everybody in this class. And tomorrow I'll match the money that you bring me. Wow. So if you bring me a thousand, I'll give you a thousand. You bring me a hundred, I'll give you a hundred. Out of 30 kids, I was the only one that showed up with money the next day. Hmm. And what's cool wow. is he sends me a message. So I, th- I was thinking about this, like Fogg's Ranch and I was here and I was telling like uh, Shannon about this. He sent me a message about two years ago. And he goes, you remember that one time when I actually helped you set up your first Scott Strait account? Because he talked about compounding interest. He's like, if you're 14, you get 200 bucks. When you're 50, this is going to be something. A lot. Yeah. I mean, we're talking like, just com- he just showed us the principle of compounding interest. So I had that. I still have the Scott Strait account. Oh, really? Yeah. That's fun. And he calls me and he's like, hey, I just want, like, I've, I then since moved right after I graduated high school. But I'm talking like, hits me up on Facebook and he's like, dude. Out of all the kids, I still tell the story when I public speak. He's like a big speaker now and he's done some cool stuff. And he's like, you were the only kid that invested. Hmm. And he's like, look where you're at today. Right. And I think like if you're not teaching your kids this principle, yep. like I have an app called Greenlight that teaches kids money and mm-hmm. it gives them like actual credit card kind of thing. Um, if you're not helping the mindset of being an investor young, I think you're doing yourself and your, your family a disservice sometimes because he's now gone on to have charities and host ranches like this. And, you know, I look to guys like you and, and, and I want to be that guy that like, yeah, I can pay for my, I just paid for my in-laws to go to Hawaii two weeks ago. You know what I mean? Like right. I, I want to be the one that says, Hey, I have so much money. I, I can give whenever I need to. Yep. All right. Last topic. We talked about how to make money, how to invest money. Let's talk about how to give some of it away to charity. So charity is not always about money. It's also about sweat equity, your cell phone, energy rallying the troops like getting people together behind a cause you have a cause that you're passionate about and you tied it in with your actual industry and business walk us through what your charity is and give us the, the background yeah so it's called street smarts so you can find it streetsmartsu.com so if anybody's listening to this has a high school kid or a middle school kid we'd love to get them involved what it is is i was like what made me different like why am i successful it's because i painted curbs all through high school so i was like what if i could give people a simple business model to where it wasn't like the business entrepreneur class where like, I've invented this app that's right. going to cost me a billion dollars in some reading. <laughs> right. I was like, what if I could help you start a business right now and you start making money instead of working at Everbowl, you go work in your own business, yep. whether that's lawn mowing, painting curbs, uh, window cleaning, car detailing, things like that. So we have courses online and we have twice a week, we have a mentor that actually meets with them. So we do these six week kind of turnarounds where they meet twice a week, they have a class, um, virtually and in person in Utah, we have our mentors, but it's like, we want to have like a handhold, Here's your business. Let's have some mentorship on how to teach young kids to learn street smarts, not just book smarts, which I think so many people put so much emphasis on book smarts. But I'm like, there's a good combination. You've got to learn how to get rejected. you got to learn communication skills. you got to learn like business and accounting. And, you know, I found the other day my dad like brought over the laptop with a hard drive and it had all of my accounting ledgers from when I was 13 to 17 hmm. of all my curb painting. I had 11 of my buddies working for me in high school. Wow. So we call ourselves the gutterman. Like I'm not talking just like every once in a while I go out. Like I had 11 employees that are, Holy you know, I'd say it's 15 bucks. You keep seven. I keep overhead and profit. Like I had stencil kits. I give out area. I had them bring in the cash. Like it was a thing. Yeah. And I was like, man, like I learned management. I learned people skills. I learned dedication. I learned to get myself out on my bicycle to go to a neighborhood to knock doors. I learned all of that at such a young age. And I was like, what if I could build a platform? It's nonprofit that can help parents plug their kids in to not just summer camp where they go play soccer. Right. I'm like, what if you got them learning how to make money and manage money? That's amazing. I know. It's dope. I love it. It's dope.
<laughs> Alright guys, you're listening to the Money Mondays. Make sure to follow Sam Taggart across social media, especially on Instagram. Check out the DDD con, all the things he's doing. Streetsmartsu.com if you have any middle school, high school kids that want to learn how to make some money and have some real functional charity. It's not just like charity. They're actually going out there and learning a lot of skills. But we have one request every single time here. We need you guys to have these discussions about money with your staff, your friends, your family, your followers, etc. We need to have these open discussions. It's really important for us as a society to get through these hard times in our world and get through the chaos that's going on out there by having discussions about money. So visit us at themoneymondays.com. We do a live Q&A every Monday at 4 p.m. PST, which I'm about to go do right now. And share this with your friends. Make sure we have discussions. Follow Sam Taggart, and we'll see you guys next Monday. If you put in $100,000, and you're making 7% of $100,000 on a seven cap. A seven cap means you're making 7% of what you paid into the deal when you pay a property cash. The cap rate is the amount of money that you make as a return on your investment. And so if you invest $100,000 in your cash on cash return, if it's divided on equal shares of equity, you're making 7% on your $100,000. gentlemen welcome to a special edition of the money mondays where we talk about three topics how to make money how to invest money how to give it away to charity today's guest has over 600 million dollars in real estate assets under management you are in for a treat to talk about all things real estate money investing please welcome mr jerome maldonado thank you dan appreciate you having me it's exciting to be here man Okay, when I say 600 million, talk, talk me through that. Like, when people are out there listening, that just sounds like a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot. Like, how does, that, how does it start? Was the first investment a couple hundred thousand, a couple million? Like, walk us through the beginning of how the heck you got to this place. It's been a journey more than it has been just a, a place that you get to, right? It, and it's really come from just consistency of everything that we've done. I, when I started, I started um, really with a 460 credit score, and I started... Um, with about $106,000 in debt. And, um, and I bought a little rental house. I had a little construction company I started after getting put out of business. Um, we, the FTC shut down a direct sales company that I was part of back in the 90s. And I started in 1998. And it's, it's 25 years of just consistency and just little assets growing from uh, one single family home to duplicating it to two, then eight, then 12, and then taking that money at the same time and revolving it into commercial assets, retail, getting crushed by the recession, thinking that we were going backwards. Well, we were actually pedaling forward. And it's actually the 2008 recession that really perlayed us. Um, and then it was a decision that we made in 2016 that um, I was stagnant. And it was the uh, means of us going out and actually scaling um, our means of uh, creating capital from uh, investors. And then from 2016, to where we are today is really where we expanded and grown. Hmm. Um, I learned a lot along the way. All right, guys. So we like to keep these episodes to under 40 minutes because the average workout is around 45 minutes and the average commute to work is around 45 minutes. So we like to make these episodes just under 40 minutes so you guys can take it in at home. We also have the moneymondays.com. We do every Monday live Q&A sessions at 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time where I do like actual live Q&A and speeches. I got to do one in a couple hours because it happens to be Monday right now. So Jerome, this is really important. When someone wants to first consider getting into real estate, what are the first thing they should be doing? Is it studying? Is it finding a mentor? Is it researching? Just diving right in. What should people be doing when they first want to get involved in real estate? I, I, I tell them just keep it simple. But yeah, absolutely, 100%. They need a mentor. 
Um, I didn't have one. Um, I did it through the means of banging my head against the wall, and that's why it took me 25 years to yep. get to where, I, where I'm at now. Um, I could have probably done what I'm doing now in less than 10 years, um, but I didn't have a mentor in the early years. I had a mentor, a business mentor. I had guidance through um, mentors that I had in the business arena, but not in real estate. And so the first thing they should do is educate themselves, the basic stuff, you know, and it's it, for anybody that's an athlete, it's the same thing as going back to the basics, what coaches tell you to do when you're even a professional athlete It's what all the best of the best do. And the same thing in real estate, um, we, people tend to complicate things. And so if they take it back down to the basics where they're learning how to underwrite deals, the simple profit and loss stuff in real estate, that's probably the most, the number one most important thing that they need to do. And um, having, a, having some type of guidance with a mentor is probably the, a, the key component to success. So in the real estate space, there's flipping houses, there's short-term rentals, there's Airbnbs, there's Section 8 housing, there's multifamily, there's so many options. How do people choose their first time investing in real estate? I, I would say just to invest in something that makes sense to them because really they, they all, even though it's widespread, they all do flow together. Um, I started in single-family rental homes. I've evolved over the years. We, um, I hated single-family rental homes. It just, I just didn't like them. Um, I didn't like dealing with the tenants, so I got into commercial real estate. Um, I found that with commercial tenants, they'd signed three-year, five-year leases, way easier to manage, and I was able to buy it uh, at distressed prices, and I was able to stabilize them um, almost. Uh, nothing's risk-free, but with a lot less risk, and my upside with almost the exact same amount of money that I put into a single family home, I could buy a retail building that was distressed and spend $250,000 on that, dump a little bit of money into renovations and have four times the income flow and, and the safety. So I, I like distressed assets when you're getting started. And I think the place where people should invest in, in my opinion, would be more distressed commercial retail um, or distressed office or repositioning of those assets as opposed to single family homes. Although I wouldn't discourage them from any of them just to get the experience. But the first, the most important thing when they first get started is to get into something that they're going to win on because the first one is, is the most important. Whether it's a $500 win, a $600 win, a $10,000 win, they just need a win on their first one. That's the biggest thing. So when is it like start time? You know, I'm working my job, I'm making 60 grand a year, or 80 grand a year, or 100 grand a year, and I've been saving up some money. How do I know when am I financially capable to actually start my first real estate investment? When you make a decision, it's it's all it's a it's a conscious decision. It's like any business owner. Like, when did you know that you were um, you had enough finances to start your first business? Because I know you. <laughs> I was 17. I saved up forty three thousand dollars working at three different jobs selling peanuts and cracker jacks and at the stadium. And uh, I said a forty three grand. I thought it was gonna last me for two years, and two months later, I ran through all it's the gone. money. Yeah. Yeah. And so it, it's the same thing. It really comes down to a decision. It has nothing to do with uh, having a certain amount of money in your pocket. Um, everything in entrepreneurship, real estate, they all flow in alignment. It really comes down to a decision and saying it's time. And like there's no perfect time to get married. There's no perfect time to have kids. There's no perfect time to start a business. It's when you make a decision that the time is right. And so it's today. You know, if you want to get started in real estate, today is the day you get started in real estate. So... How did you know this was the thing, like that real estate was going to be your thing? I didn't. I, uh, I got started. I got started. I, I was looking for anything that would make me money. I just wanted to make it. You know, when, when you're a kid that comes from the other side of the train tracks and you're and, and I was taught as a young kid that people only got wealthy if they would uh, inherit wealth or they won the lottery. <laughs> and so my parents would tell me I'd go 
I remember we go out to eat and we go to places even just as simple as Ruth Chris. And they say, well, those, those restaurants aren't for people like us. You know, those are for the attorneys and the doctors and the people that are, are wealthy, you know. And I said, well, what the hell is the difference between me and those people? And, um, you know, one of, one of the big things is, uh, is just making a decision. And for me, when I got started investing in real estate, I didn't know it was my thing. I, I was looking for a vehicle that would protect me from going broke long term. And I was pouring concrete because when we, what ended up happening was we were in the direct sales industry. We got shut down in 1997. I opened up a little door to door sales company in 1997 just to make ends meet. We were selling to companies like, um, uh, like Pizza Hut, um, dry cleaners, big O tires. And, and we were making a little bit of money, but we weren't getting wealthy. And so I got into construction on accident. They were, you, you know, the waterfall on the top of your hill over here, that's a mm -hmm. fake faux rock. Mm -hmm. Well, I took a little seminar on that stuff, um, on how to do that stuff. And we started bidding projects like um, the um, Rainforest Cafes. Yeah. There was a restaurant called Margaritas down in Utah, in Sandy Lee, Utah, that they did indoor diving on. Well, those were like my claim to fame because I bid those projects. And when I went in there, I was at a point where I was in financial distress and I, I felt like I had nothing to lose and everything to gain. So I said, I said screw it. If I'm just going to bid these things. If I get them, then great. I'm going to figure out a way mm -hmm. to do them. And I just knew I had enough money in there to figure them out. And so by the grace of God, what I thought was a lot of money wasn't a lot of money because I didn't have a lot of overhead. And I got some of those jobs. And from that, I started investing in little pieces of real estate. So I, have an, I had an asset that I had something tangible that I had to show for my money. And that was as simple as it was. And I continued in traditional business. And I would, I would make a few million dollars a year, you know, I had a company that would do like 2 million, that grew to like 4 million. And then we did a, a little house building company that we would buy land, build houses. And I would take that money and I would build a few homes a year, make a few hundred grand net profit. And I invested in more real estate. And, and I, and then just through growing those asset bases, it grew to retail where I was building them brand new in 2004. And then Four years later into the recession, we almost got crushed with retail. And so I wanted out of real estate. Sure. I wanted out, but I needed a means to be able to pay for all this stuff without going bankrupt. So I started buying more real estate in Phoenix where it was really financially distressed. And we started picking up like single family homes for like $25,000, $40,000. We started picking up fourplexes for like $35,000, $40,000. And I built a little portfolio of about $4 million worth of real estate for about, and it, I, I was all out of pocket for just under 900 grand. Wow. So we were able to evolve and, um, and real estate kept pulling me back for some reason. And, um, and it wasn't until really 2016 where I had a portfolio of maybe about $15 million worth of real estate that I said, we need to scale this and we need to do something that's going to take care of us long term forever. And, um, and so that's when we actually started raising capital and that's when we really started scaling stuff. And that's where I really decided. Like in 2016, I said, okay, this is it. Everything that we've all done this far is great active income, but this is the only thing that we've done that gives us passive income that we can scale and we could actually have and, and rely on long term. So when you raise capital, do you do it through syndication for one deal or through a fund or like walk us through what's the main idea when you raise capital? So you can do it multiple ways. We do. We've done all of the above. Um, one of the things that we do is is if we're doing a syndication, it is property specific. So we'll go in and uh, and there's different laws and different regulations. So you're going to buy a $20 million dollar apartment building yep. and you're going to raise... So if we're going to do $20 million apartment building, you know, you're going to usually raise, like right now, you're going to raise one third of that. 
in, in capital. Okay, so, so seven you, million bucks. Yep. So yep. you raise seven million dollars. You go to your SEC attorney. Yep. And um, if you can either do it with friends and family, you can do uh, Regulation 506B um, through friends and family, or you ha- you can advertise it and you can do a, a 506C. And um, and so just depending on what your what your bandwidth is, like you're a, a social media person. So if I had bandwidth with social media, I would go more after the 506C because I can go out and raise capital through the means of people I don't know. If I want to, um, if I if I have a big network of wealthy people or not even wealthy people, but I'm going to meetups and I'm, I'm going out and have relationships with other people that are in real estate, I can do a 506B and just do friends, family, and colleagues that are uh, through a 506B and I can raise it privately. And so when someone invests, let's say I'm the person at the event and you say, hey, Dan, put in 50 grand, 100 grand, 500 grand, a million, whatever the number is, what is an investor, what should I be looking for when someone approaches me with a syndication deal? Um, you should be looking at the experience. You should be vetting the experience of your general partners, um, what they've done in the past, how they've managed assets, um, what they've given in returns for their internal rates of return, what they're doing as far as their cash on cash returns. Um, and I don't know what the sophistication is of the audience that's watching us right now, but your cash on cash return is the amount of money that you bear on the money you invest. So the um, immediately. So, so I put in 100 grand, walk me through it. So yeah, so if you put in $100,000, and you're making 7% of $100,000 on a seven cap, right? Yep. A, a cap rate of 7%. What's a seven cap mean? A seven cap means you're making 7% of what you paid into the deal okay. or what you paid. What a cap rate is, is when you pay a property cash. Okay. You buy a property all cash and it's paid off. And it, if you're buying it for a 7% cap rate or a 6% cap rate, the cap rate is the amount of money that you make as a return on your investment. And so if you invest $100,000 in your cash on cash return, if it's divided on equal shares of equity, you're making 7% on your $100,000, okay, annually. That's your cash on cash return. Your internal rate of return is the amount that you're making when you sell the asset. So it's your money's parked. It's like uh, compared to stocks. It's when the stock goes up and the appreciation in, in the value of that stock is sold. It's what you make when you sell the stock. So in real estate, when your cat, your internal rate of return is the appreciated value that's in that real estate when you sell it. And it's the return you make after you sell the asset. Very cool. Yeah. So, so someone approaches me and says, Hey, Dan, put a hundred grand into my $20 million property. I'm raising 7 million. Dan put a hundred grand. I'm hoping to make around 7% a year for X amount of years. Yeah. So usually there's a call time. Um, with most syndications, they're three to five years. So our business model is a little different. We do syndicate, um, and we'll syndicate um, existing properties, but we're, we do a lot of ground-up construction. Oh. So what we do, like our business model, and I'll kind of explain this. This is a little non-traditional than what most people do. The way we've actually scaled to where we're at, and um, we, re- we retain 100% equity. Um, now that money is tight right now, um, and this, for all the listeners that are listening, this is, this is a business model that you can do even on smaller assets. So if you're in construction, if you're doing fix and flips, if you're doing value add and you're already doing renovations and stuff in the construction trade, um, listen to this because this is like gold for most people. Um, and well, the reason we've been able to do this is because I have a construction background and um, we also have a real estate background. But what we do is I raise capital to buy the land. And so what I typically do is I raise debt. 
And so when I go in and I raise debt on the land, the land is non-entitled, meaning that it doesn't have the permissive use to be able to build like an apartment complex on the land, for sake of example. So what I'll do is I'll, I'll buy the land at a very discounted price, maybe under a million dollars for five acres worth of land. And then what I do to create value in my land is in, I'll maybe raise $2 million so I can get through entitlements, which is the actual permitting process where we pay for architects, engineers on like, let's say a 20 million to $50 million development. And we'll go in and we'll entitle the entire property. We'll pay about $300,000 for the architects, the engineers. We have some, those are all called your soft cost. And then when we're all done with the entitlements, the land value will more, a lot of times be worth three times or more what we buy for it. So if we get like, if we can put 200 units of apartments, that land's probably worth somewhere close to $6 million, Mm -hmm. right? So when money's cheap, we, we land up going in for a construction loan and the money is in the plans. So after we get all the entitlements, we go in for the construction loan. We go in and we, we, we go to the bank with a retail value of building it out. So when we do a retail value of building it out, we go in and we, we build the product out ourselves. We collateralize the land. We exit all the investors out on our first draw for our construction loan. And then we own the entire property free and clear of any investors. And the only, the only partner we have in the entire deal is the bank. And then we land up building out the entire asset. We stabilize it. And I've been able to retain 100% of the equity in my deals that way. Um, and so what we're doing now to raise capital, since we own 100%, most syndicators give away 70% of their deal in syndication. What we're doing now is we're carving off 30% off the top end to reduce our liability um, because money's expensive right now. Construction loans are costing 10 to 11%. And what we're doing is we're reducing down our liability by giving out about 30% of the equity in our deals and still only partnering with a bank and then picking and choosing who we actually work with as far as our investors. Well, it gives us a lot of bandwidth for growth. So I'm at that same party. Someone says I got a $20 million property. I need $7 million I'm raising. Dan put in 100 grand, but they offer me like 19% a year or 23% a year. What number is like too good to be true when it comes to syndication deals? So, so when you say the percentages, you know, Typically, anything over 12% is typically um, too good to be true, unless you're talking about your um, internal rate of return. You know, for an internal rate of return, uh, because it's not based on an annual basis, um, your internal rate of return is your return, and you may be a return of 20%, but it's, it's collateralized over three years worth of time. So mm-hmm. if you have a 20, uh, 20% uh, IRR, internal rate of return, it's a 20% over the course of the time you've owned the asset on your money. Um, not not over an annual basis. Now, when you're talking about your cash on cash return, anything over 12%, a lot of times, is um, is right. too good. The 20 foot snake just walked by. Sorry. Did it, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're live here at, at the ranch right now. There's a big snake that just walked by. Go ahead. Sorry. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> they have it on their shoulders. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so someone, you know, approached me at that same event and they say, I have a fund. Hey, Dan, I'm raising a $20 million fund. In my fund, we're going to buy storage units, apartment complexes, RV parks, et cetera. What should I be looking for as an investor when someone says I'm raising 20 million for a, a real estate fund? Yeah, you need to look at their deal flow. Uh, most important when you raise, when, because with a fund, the difference is that you're not investing in one asset, you're investing in multitudes of assets that are within that fund. And so in the law is that you have 100% disclosure anytime you invest in a fund or a syndication. And so it is your duty to request the documents 
of what consists within that fund. And so my recommendation, anybody that is, in, is looking to invest in a fund is know exactly what the, they're investing into, what the parameters are, and make sure that you know what your risk tolerance is because some funds can be extremely high risk, you know. Um, like right now, people that are doing regular apartment syndication funds, I wouldn't invest in them unless I knew the general partners and I knew the strength of their books. So I would audit their books right now in, in a market like we're seeing today um, because a lot of these guys, like I'll give you an example. Um, we There's a, a fund, I won't mention the name of the group, but we just bid up against them on a on a deal down in Tucson, and the deal is worth twenty eight million, twenty seven and a half million dollars. That's all it's worth, and that's based on a five percent cap rate. Hmm. Okay, and uh, that thing sold for thirty four million dollars at a five percent cap rate, <laughs> and it's because they have inventory already in that market. That was the justification of the um, brokers, but the reality is that. I, the return on investment, you can take your money right now, Dan, and you know, you could put it in the bond market and get 4% right now, mm -hmm. and it's safe. Why in the world would you go in and write a five cap that's not even a real five cap? Because once you dilute it to $34 million, you're probably at a four cap and put that type of risk out when you can just stuff your money in a bond market and then just get a, ret a return in two years, three years that's safer than investing in some fund. So you got to be careful. You got to make sure that um, you yourself have a little bit of indicate of uh, knowledge on underwriting some of these deals, and that you really trust and vet the people that you're working with for their experience more than anything. So the person that's managing the syndicate or managing the fund, what is the typical fees I should be looking for when they approach me? For uh, the fees that they're taking? Yeah. Well, some of these guys do, they make a living on their fees, and that's that's one of the reasons they'll continue buying deals. And so. Two and a half percent is good. Um, some of these guys will charge as high as six percent. Whoa, that's a big difference. It's a big difference. <laughs> yeah, it's a big difference. And um, and they're hidden, you know, between management fees. Um, they're hidden between um, asset fees. And you just have to know that the fees that you're looking at when you're looking at the P&Ls, there's a, a separation between the property management fees and the asset management fees. And so when you're looking at the at the profit and loss statements and you're looking at your the expenses because most people don't know they they get at this long 200 right. itemized number yeah. profit and loss statement yeah. and they're sitting there and they're looking at every line and they say property management and then it says management well it might be an asset management what kind of management is it and so two and a half percent to five percent is pretty typical um, you start getting outside of that realm it becomes pretty high risk you know, these guys, they're making their money's not on the actual um, real estate. They're making on the management fees. Hmm. So. so someone's thinking to themselves, man, I, I can invest in a syndicate or I can invest in a fund or I can try to do it myself or I can try to do it with my friends. Like when there's so many options, how do they how do they know what they want? Like, how do they figure out for themselves? Like, how do I decide when there's so many different ways to go as an investor? Yeah, just as an investor, strictly not. So there so there's obviously reefs that people can invest in. Right. So those are publicly traded and you can go in and you can get a, a three point six percent return with BlackRock right now on a dividend. You know, so my so when you look at it, you have to look at it from a perspective. And I'm a bad person to ask this to. And the reason why is because I'm very conservative when it comes to investing. So I would never personally invest in somebody else's deal unless it's getting over an 8% cap rate hmm. and unless um, I'm getting an internal rate of return in excess of 20%, okay? And so how do you bear those numbers? Well, 
the only way to bear those numbers right now is to get a good deal. And there's not a lot of them out there. So you have to be underwriting deals all the time. And that's why we started building was because in 2018, I noticed that people cap rates were getting compressed. Um, the amount that P and values were going through the roof. And so once values go through the roofs, cap rates get compressed. There's only one way down from that. Mm -hmm. And that it becomes a high risk investment. So I figured, shit, I'm going to mitigate my risk by building these things. I can walk into these things at a 12% cap rate. And I have, and then I own 100% of them. And I was stabilizing these things at about a 35% equity standpoint from the bank. So we were walking in fully stabilized at 35% equity in these deals from the time we actually got a stabilized loan. So, so it, I'm a bad person to ask because I would never invest in anything that didn't have at least a seven to eight percent cap rate. And I, I push closer to the eight percent cap rate mark. So when people are asking me, I'm telling them, look for a seven to eight percent cap rate, seven percent at minimum, and um, or at least a business model that's going to bear you eight percent once a good manager takes over the asset and can get that property up to an eight percent cap rate within a reasonable amount of time, which a reasonable amount of time is less than 18 months. And if it's a stabilized asset, less than 16 months. I mean, less than six months. So so what do you like to invest into since you have so many options? Like, how do you decide for yourself what you invest into? So I like distressed assets. What I decide, I decide my investments are all based on time and the value of my time on my return. So what I look for is I look for opportunity where other people aren't looking. Um, like right now, a lot of syndicators don't know anything about construction. So where I benefit that they don't, the benefits I have that they don't is that I understand construction really well. So if somebody's looking at just a financially distressed asset to buy, I'm looking at also physically distressed assets. And so if you understand the financial end of it, plus the construction end of it, I'm looking where there's distress. Because where there's distress, there's money to be made. And there's upside Can on Can you give it. an example of distress? You mean like husband and wife are divorcing? Uh, someone's going bankrupt? Like what does the distress mean? Yeah, so it, it's all the above. I mean, if you're looking at smaller single family stuff that uh, that, uh, that a husband and wife are going through divorce, um, going through financial hard times, uh, maybe somebody's sick and ill and can't work, um, and that stuff's going into bankruptcy, that's one form of it. But when I talk about financially distressed, I'm looking at it more big picture. And... Um, you know, since we're on Money, money Mondays, I'm, I'm assuming that a lot of the demographics that we're hitting um, is looking at being able to scale up with a little bit of what they're doing, right? So I'm, when, we're, when I'm talking about distress, I'm talking about financially distressed assets, stuff that people have overpaid for. Hmm. Because when times are good, um, people think that those good times are going to continue going forever. And, um, and you and I both know that that's not the case. You've lived through some, you've lived through a couple of recessions. I've lived through three recessions and you get bottlenecked when money's good. Times are good. When, t when money gets tight when money gets expensive, like it does now, um, distressed assets become extremely attractive. And when I say distressed, I'm not just talking about physically distressed. I'm also talking about financially distressed because financially distressed assets come when people have over leveraged themselves. And right now, there's a lot that's coming to the market where people had, for example, five one arms, which is basically what that means is it's a, an adjustable rate mortgage. After five years, it becomes adjustable to the market. So if they had it at a two and a half or three percent interest rate and, the, the, and it, their note is now called and it and now they, they're on a fluctuating rate mortgage, they may be paying seven percent on that. Now, if they bought that asset at four percent return, how do you pay a four percent return right. if you have a seven percent interest? Hmm. Right. You can't even afford your debt. So now it becomes a financially distressed asset because you don't, there's, there's, a, 
there's a teeter-totter effect for where do you get it back in alignment? And that's where we come in. So if it's financially distressed through the means of relationships and shopping for this stuff, we're able to come in and, and offset that balance and find some of these deals where they're financially distressed and people can't do them. They're, on, they're, they're staring bankruptcy in the eyes and um, it opens doors and opportunities for investors from single family to multifamily to retail to office and all around. All right. So we talked a lot about making money, investing money. We like to wrap up and talking about giving some money away to charity. Yep. How do you decide for yourself what type of charity you invest into? And for the listeners that are out there, how can they look around to make decisions for themselves about what type of place that they can donate money to? Yeah. So that I think each individual, it's where your heart sits. Right. Um, so early childhood development for me is real important. Um, I grew up dyslexic. Um, I was never a straight A student in, in school. In fact, I was always the kid that uh, was throwing spit watch to get out of reading in class. Right. So I, I'd rather sit in a corner than uh, I'd rather sit in a corner in trouble than have to read aloud in class. So early childhood development for me, I think sometimes um, charities are right at the heart of um, of who you are as a person. Um, my wife. Um, it breaks her heart when she sees homeless mothers and there's kids or animals on the street. Um, I know you do a lot with like with home with the homeless. So I think you, you have to pick a charity that and do something around where your heart space is. Yeah. So I started the homeless charity 10 years ago. It's called the model citizen fund. Uh, we make backpacks for the homeless, yeah. the 150 emergency supply items inside half of its food and drinks. The other half of its poncho watch, sleeping bag, cleaning supplies, books, et cetera, to help them get their back on their feet. We've given away millions and millions of items to the homeless over the years. And then the other passion we have is called Trina's Kids Foundation. We do four charity events per year for the last nine years. We do a back-to-school day drive where kids bring in their, all the, you know, we get them backpacks kids, yeah. and things like that. We have a report card day. they got to bring in their report card. And so depending on the level of the grades and what kind of prizes and presents that they get, we do a Thanksgiving food drive, which is really big every year. And then our biggest Love thing that. is the toy drive. You know, last year we broke the Guinness Book World Record for the largest toy drive in history. Um, this year we're going to try to do 10 cities because it's our 10 year anniversary. Yeah. So we're going to go crazy and try to do it all over the country. Um, but the toy drive is my passion project. The charity that I run is model citizen fund is for the homeless. But my passion is the, the charity for the kids. Cause I want people to give out toys. They don't have to do it through me. Yeah. And the reason we post about charity so much is that they, they replicate us. Meaning Jerome, you don't have to donate to the toy drive. You do a toy drive. You don't have to buy backpacks for the homeless. You make backpacks for the homeless with your kids and Ziploc bags and give it out to the homeless. Yeah. I want to just showcase how easy charity can be um, when you put your mind behind it. And I love that. Not as much Bro, about the money. That. Not as much about the money part. Just your your time, energy, and passion into yeah. something that you care about. Last question. We are in chaotic times, right? People are nervous. People are scared. There's a lot of opportunity when that happens. Yeah. I always say to stay calm during the chaos. What would you say to people that are considering investing during the chaotic times? If they've never invested before, I, I tell them to take a deep breath and, um, and learn. Get educated right now. Right now is a great time to get educated. I will tell you that um, what I, it's hard because right now there's so much opportunity, right? But if you're not careful and you haven't educated yourself, you can end up losing big during these times. So education is key. And in times of distress, there is massive, massive opportunity, but everybody has the uh, golden bucket of gold at the end of the rainbow. And one of the biggest uh, problems in the entrepreneurial space is that 
um, people are looking at it through their phones and social media and they feel like they're missing out on something. 90% of these people are broke. And so you gotta be careful what you're investing in. And so if you don't know yourself what to invest in, my recommendation is to educate yourself first. Get good at one thing. And I think so many people have the shiny object syndrome. They're everywhere. And one thing that I've done, Dan, over the years is I've always stayed focused in my lane. There's been times where I've had friends that have gone in, they've made a shit ton of money in the finance space, or they've made a shit ton of money in courses and education, or they made a shit ton of money doing some, doing debt consolidation. And I've always been the guy in the construction. When, when you're out there pouring wet concrete, build, running a construction company, and someone else is out on the beach because they have a, right. it, it's real easy to get distracted. Mm -hmm. um, but over the last 25 years, when my wife and I look at everything that, that has come and gone in front of us, one thing has been consistent. We've, most of them, not everybody, but almost everybody, we've out-earned them and we're still here. And so I tell people right now when there's so much blood on the wall and, the, and things are in chaos, either educate yourself extremely well, but don't get so broad that you lose yourself. Stay focused on one thing that you can get really good at mastering in these times and invest in that. Because it, there, there's money in anything as long as you stay focused. And the biggest thing, there's so much distraction, most people can't stay focused hmm. or consistent. All right, guys, you're listening to The Money Mondays. Uh, make sure to follow Jerome across all social media platforms. It's really important that we have these discussions about money because we all grew up thinking it's rude to talk about money. Yeah. We think it's rude to not talk about it because the majority of capital that you use, it's not the root of all evil. It's for your health, your family, your mortgage, your rent, your clothes, your everything, your food, your gasoline, your car. Every little basic thing is money-related. So it's okay to have discussions about money. It's part of why we have The Money Mondays. So if you can... Continue to like, subscribe, comment, share with your friends. Go to themoneymondays.com and we will see you guys next Monday.